listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Water Tanks, the most trusted name in water storage in Australia. For over 30 years, they've remained the industry leader by continually improving the engineering and technology that goes into every tank. Superior technology gives you superior peace of mind for your precious water storage. Welcome back to the Central Station Podcast. My name is Steph Coombs and I'm your host. After 36 episodes talking about cattle, I thought we'd mix it up and talk about another four-legged herbivore that is also found on many cattle stations. Camels. My guest today is an incredible woman named Hannah, who, as you're about to learn, knows an awful lot about camels and has no shortage of yarns about them. Hannah has managed to fit an incredible amount into her life so far, and this episode shares stories about living all over the world, falling in love in the Northern Territory, and finding her purpose working with camels. She also talks about how she sees camels fitting into the pastoral industry. So, let's get into it. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, normally when people come on this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about cattle stations and cows, which, you know, it's the Central Station podcast, that makes sense. But today we're actually, we will get to cows, but before we get to cows, we're going to talk about another four-legged, really cute animal. Um, What what are we going to talk about? Yes, we're just going to take a quick detour to camels. Because you are. I was thinking when I was thinking of like things I could call this episode, I was like the camel queen. I like some alliteration. And I was like, I don't know what we're going to call it, but something to do with camels because long story short, everyone, which well, not actually because you need to listen to the whole (laughs) podcast is Hannah has done like an amazing amount of work with camels and is like this camel lady, but not lady that makes you sound old and you're not old. Um, If you Google the camel lady, you'll actually find this like, um, poor woman that was like put in a freak a freak show and um, because like she couldn't like walk properly and it looked like she was a camel oh really yeah oh, it's no. really sad okay <laughs> we'll just put direct links to hannah's like socials in the show notes so you don't have to try and google her um so you don't come across the poor camel lady but i thought we might start off with um just something that is so you know we've had some stories on this podcast of of people having some pretty hairy run-ins with cattle and you've had some pretty hairy run-ins with camels. So I thought we might start off with one of those and then we'll kind of go back and work our way through. But yeah, you have a pretty hectic story of um, something that happened to you, which I guess people, yeah, you just don't think about that when you think of camels. Yeah. So camels um, are like, well, I think they're amazing, but they definitely can have um, a scary, dangerous side if you're not careful. Um, So the incident that Steph is referring to is a morning that I decided to go and check on one of our camels. She had had a baby the night before. Uh, we'd seen like the baby be born and we'd sort of just left her to her own devices. But I, just before I went to the shops that morning, I thought I'd just quickly go and see how she was doing. Um, nobody else was with me. I kind of broke all of my self-imposed safety 
rules for like going in with a new mum. And uh, this ca- this camel in particular, like usually I prefer to work with wild camels because like you can sort of start from scratch. But this one had had a history of some like um, sort of abuse and stuff like that. So she wasn't the keenest on people, but I thought it would be okay, stupidly. And I walked into her yard because she had her placenta was still kind of like half retained. It was like half hanging out. And I just wanted to like go in and see like if she'd let me help her with it at all. And so I was kind of staying close to the fence, like just sort of giving her a space because normally like the camels will sort of, once they've just had a baby, they'll sort of like tell you off a bit, like, you know, put in a bit of mama bear behavior. She wasn't displaying any of that. She was just, just looking at me. And then all of a sudden just went from zero to a hundred and she just ran across the yard towards me. Um, She like bit me on my head, like partially picked me off up off the ground with um, her mouth with her mouth via your head via my head and um so yeah so i've still got like the teeth marks that you can feel in my temple so that was painful but then she dropped me onto the ground and she picked me up by my arm and she literally just swung me like a rag doll my whole entire body weight just from my shoulder just swung me around like that she dropped me again she kicked me kind of everywhere, like stomped on me. And then somehow I managed to start crawling away. I was just kind of like army crawling towards the fence, just trying to get out of there. But she kind of stopped me at every turn. And like, as I was like crawling towards the fence, she bit me on my foot and just like, I felt like I was being attacked by a crocodile because she started dragging me backwards. And anyway, like I managed to kick her in the face with the other foot and then just like I don't even really remember getting over that fence, but all of a sudden I was just on the ground on the other side of the fence. And, um, yeah, I think I just kind of stayed in fetal position on the ground for about 20 minutes, just freaking out because I know so many stories of like people being killed by camels. It, it doesn't happen all the time, but probably once a year you hear a story internationally about somebody being killed by a camel. And I was like, okay, so this is me. Like I'm going to be in the newspaper girl killed by camel everyone's probably gonna laugh about it like it's just awful but yeah so that just as you're describing that the visual i had in my mind was like one of those i don't know which one but the jurassic park movies where like the dinosaurs like you know the t-rex like or the raptor or whatever pick someone up and like kind of they're like screaming and and then (laughs) you know and then they get out and they're like or in some of you know they're trying to crawl away and they just grab them by the foot and drag them back and then you're like they're gone and stuff like that is that's how it kind of felt but it was (laughs) cute and cuddly camel but not so cute or cuddly um and i think like as if that's not a mad enough story on its own that you know you're this woman working with camels and go through that horrific attack you are a qualified like makeup artist vet nurse who grew up in like the suburbs of sydney like this is (laughs) not where like you would think like maybe you were just like grew up on your parents camel farm and like you've been with camels your whole life but no you're (laughs) you know as far from like you know you just wouldn't guess that that's where you would have ended up so let's let's go back to the beginning and figure out how you ended up being like this girl from sydney who's (laughs) being attacked you know or done all this amazing (laughs) stuff with camels Yeah. Okay. So basically I grew up in Sydney and I was very much like a city, a city girl. My family did not go camping at all. Like we, that was not a thing that we did. Like was not in a lot of ways we were like very much like city people and yeah, not really super outdoorsy or anything like that. But in another aspect, like the house that I grew up in actually like 
bordered onto Lane Cove National Park. So literally I could jump out of my yard into the national park. So I think that was like something that sort of brought a duality to me. Like I could literally go from my like house in the suburbs and then I would like jump off off our driveway into the national park and run around there barefoot for hours. So despite my city upbringing, there was like definitely a little bit of nature. Yeah. 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 And just like sort of like, I would like just roam around there, like barefoot. I would like try and get lost and see if I could like find my way back. I was like a little, I'm sure feral bush child, like in some aspects. So (laughs) can you imagine if you'd actually achieved that goal, the SES would be like, or someone in the SES is going to be listening to this and be like, no. Well, actually, it was funny. Like, one day my brother did get lost in the bush and there was, like, eight police cars, like, at the end of our street when I got home. And they were like, oh, we've got to find somebody to open up this lock on the gate so we can get the cars in there. And I was like, I'll be able to find him. Don't worry about it. And so, like, I just, like, they were like, no, you can't go. And I just ran past them and um ran into the bush and I, like, found him in, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so how do you go from being – in the suburbs, you know, bordering on the national park to kind of taking a step into rural Australia and agriculture. So I finished high school like we all do. Well, I guess not all of us. Um, I finished high school and I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up, like who does, and still I don't, I guess. Um, and I decided, like I spent a week on a farm right after high school instead of doing schoolies with my friend and we were kind of like mustering sheep on horseback and stuff like that how does that come about like you have the chance i don't know where the kids in new south wales goes i don't know if you like if it's a gold coast thing as well yes like you get the chance to go the gold coast party with your friends for a week like you know live it up and you decide to go out to a farm and do manual labor don't know how to explain that i think i just thought it would be funny honestly a lot of things in my life that i've done are just because i thought it would be funny at first (laughs) And then, and then it turned into something more serious. But I thought then, like, okay, great. I just want to be a horsewoman. I mean, I'd always loved horses. Had you been riding growing up? Whenever I could, but like, it was like a bit difficult in the city. Like, and I had no idea. Like, I had no business being on a horse, really. Like, I still don't. I'm, I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at horse riding, even like, despite my enthusiasm, despite like the fact that my partner's like an amazing horse trainer. Like, anyway, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. So I just applied for jobs. After high school, and like every every place I could think of or find a horsey job, I just applied for it. I ended up choosing a job in France because I'd done like ten years of French um, through like primary and high school. So I thought, okay, well, I might be able to get around, you know, a bit easier there. And then about two weeks before I was supposed to fly to Paris, my job was kind of pulled out from under me, and I was like, what am I going to do? Oh no! And then a week after that, um, I got an email from somebody I'd applied to a job for ages ago in Italy and they said, yeah, we've got a job for you, but you're going to need to come back to, are you going to need to come to Italy? And I was like, that's fine because I have to get to Paris in one week. So I'll just catch a train and I'll see you there. So um, the week before I left, I just Googled um, How Italian. How to <laughs> Essentially, yes. Like I used like some free translate website and I got like post-its and I labeled everything in the house like with post-it notes like my even like my dog my shoes the cutlery in the cutlery drawer like if you opened any cupboard like there was a label like in the car just everything was like labeled in Italian and um that was actually super handy like I it definitely like gave me a good vocabulary and so I went over to Italy and I worked um an equestrian center there and like did 
pony club camps for the summer. And then like I was traveling around Europe a little bit and I came home and I just hated Sydney. And I, I, I really thought it was because I hated Australia. Like I thought I hated living in Australia and I kept coming home, going overseas, coming home, going overseas. <laughs> but yeah, kind of all the different things I was going overseas to do were kind of rural and remote. So where else did you end up going overseas? Um, so I lived and worked in Vanuatu on a sea turtle conservation project for a while. There was only about 250 people on the island and like no running water, um, no electricity. So if we needed to have a shower, we needed to go like walk into the middle of the village with a bucket, put the bucket in the well, bring the bucket back, like have a shower. And actually that was, that was pretty funny because <laughs> the first time I had to use like a well, I, in my mind thought it was, going to be like a you know like if you look in like a children's storybook like every yeah. well has like a little roof and yeah. you like wind the bucket yeah up. so i was like okay yeah you just throw the bucket in like snow white in a distinct movie like i i didn't really know how it worked and i i threw the bucket in and then like as i threw it in i realized it wasn't attached to anything <laughs> It was so embarrassing. And like all the villagers were like laughing at this like dumb white girl. And I was like, oh my God, like what am I going to do? And then luckily like all those Vanuatu like men, are, um, you know, climbing coconut trees, like um, on, well on that island they were. So they were like basically just reverse climbed a coconut tree down into the well. But like every time and like got it back out. It was so embarrassing. And every time, like, I walk past, like, any of those guys, they're like, next time you have to go in the well and, like, just, like, crack up <laughs> laughing. Like, and I'm like, oh, my God. How old were you at the time? Uh, I think I was, like, 19 or 20. And you're just 20. living in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, you've got none of those creature comforts, and it's not like you've grown up without those – like, you've grown up in Sydney. Yeah. How do you – how did that even – I don't even know what I'm trying to ask here. It's just so – I was really looking for something to – I really wanted – like, I'd come back from Italy, like, everybody was like, so what serious job are you going to do now? What are you going to study? And I was like, no, like, I am not finished with adventures, like, not even a little bit. And Actually, like, what I was planning to do was go to South Africa and get a pilot's license. But um, honestly, like, thank God I didn't because I don't think I'd be a very good pilot. But, um, yeah, so that was lucky. But the recession happened, the global recession, and so – it just made it so that the cost of that course was just no longer in my budget. And I was like, okay, what else? I need to get out of here. I was like working in a fairly corporate office job and I just like hated it. I mean, I liked the fact that I could <laughs> like, I really was into shoes back then when I lived in Sydney. And so like, I had like a huge collection of shoes. Yeah. No, I, the only thing that was good about that office job was that like, yeah, I liked shoes back then. Um, this was just a void in my life. I guess I was feeling with shoes. Um, no, I hated it and I wanted to leave. So, um, I just found something that I thought would be interesting and I went and did it. I think I just I- kind of like applied for a lot of things and tried to find who would have me. <laughs> it's so ballsy though, like just to go. And then I kind of, when you're like, Oh, I liked the corporate job and like wearing shoes and stuff. <laughs> Not wearing shoes. Yeah, no, everyone likes wearing no, shoes. No, no, but, you know, like having shoes. Like yeah, I yeah. certainly went through a phase like that as well. And like you have your little shoe collection, your handbag yeah, collection, yeah. and you just feel so like, oh, like this. Oh is my it. god, I had such a shopping addiction because I was. It was just the only interesting thing that was like, yeah, in my day. And you look back at it now, and you're like, how did I like? I could have bought a house. Like, yeah. what the hell? Anyway, 
<laughs> and so that's so you went to so after your that, that's when you went to Vanuatu. Yes. And then like a little did a little bit more travel that year. Um like and then the next year I and, and I went back to vet nursing. So like I was doing like vet nursing most of the time, apart from that corporate job, I was doing vet nursing when I was coming home from um like overseas and um yeah, like I did other trips, like I think like I went to like Japan and New Zealand and stuff in between those like living overseas. Um yeah, I'd like done vet nursing as part of my HSC, so I just continued to do that like when I came back to Sydney. Um even though like honestly I was adamant for a long time that I wasn't gonna make animals part of my job, like obviously that didn't work out very <laughs> well. But anyway, um blah blah blah. I got a job in America. So Yeah, tell me about this. Because we will get to the cuddle session part eventually, guys. Don't worry. But it's just I just love that how you've had, you know, people think, oh, if you work on a cuddle station, you've just, you know, kind of probably grown up on a farm, come out, and then you just worked on station like that's it. But, like, you have done so many weird and wonderful things. It's funny because I feel like if you look at it, you'd be like, how does this fit in? But, honestly, all of those different things have, like, really equipped me to be – equipped me for life on a cattle station in, like – a lot of different ways, like even just to, from the very basic, being able to kind of get on with lots of different people and work with lots of different people yeah. and um, overcome cultural differences pretty quickly and easily. That's like for sure been a, a skill that I've definitely has definitely come in handy. Like on a cattle station now, you know when we're putting teams together and things like that, like. It, it definitely has helped. I mean, and obviously, like, remote living. Yeah. Um, like, in Italy, the village we lived in was so small, and um, I think it was only 79 people in the whole village. And, like, yeah, obviously, Vanuatu was, like, tiny and remote and had no power. So, like, that definitely, like, equipped me to, like, be in a stock camp or whatever. Um, learn how to shower without having a shower. <laughs> no, yeah, I did it. I do actually work on a cattle station now, like despite. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll talk about cows later, but there's just so much more. Like, yeah, you've done so much stuff that I want to – you tell us that. So what were you doing in America? So I was basically doing guerrilla marketing in universities. So I would go into I – would, I would get sent – I had no idea where I was going to end up. I had a ticket to Los Angeles. We did training in California in the mountains for like two weeks. And then the end of that two weeks, they're like, this is where you're heading. And I got sent to Georgia, which probably was another thing that like really um, sort of pushed me into liking rural life. You know, Georgia's like, you know, the South and there's like the cowboys and like country life and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I got sent like to different universities. I had to go to a different university or college, as I'd say, every week and basically try and recruit students to do these um, conservation or volunteering projects, which was similar to what I'd done in Vanuatu. And they could basically do a combination of like volunteering and adventure travel. So I basically went, they sent Australians over there because Australians just. Everyone loves Australians. Exactly. Like, um, so that was kind of fun to be the like popular Australian on campus, like every week, like wherever you, <laughs> wherever you went. Yeah. And so that would have been like a lot of persuasive skills that you would have learned, like the art of persuasion. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. So I had to like go into, um, like, 
I had to basically just walk into classes with like no previous permission and like convince the professor to let me talk to their students before class. And, you know, you're like taking up their valuable lesson time. Um, so yeah, you definitely had to be like very persuasive, even just stuff like getting somebody in the campus administration to give you a, a room that you could work out of that was like close and accessible for the students. Cause they'd often give you a room that was like outside of campus and you needed it to be like closer. So, um, also the company was like, would insist on us trying to like bargain everything. So like when we rented a car or like booked a hotel, like, you know, you had to do the whole, oh, this is a non-profit organization. Like, please can you like make it cheaper or whatever? And it was just, um, but such a valuable skill to have, like even out here, you know, probably yeah. having to bargain with like the cook or I don't know. Yeah. Anyone like, yeah, yeah, no, definitely like, um, yeah, buying products, anything. Yeah. It's definitely, um, definitely a valuable skill or even just like, you know, learning to like hold your own, um, you know, with all the ringers and things yeah. like that. And so what, after America, so how long did you do that for? Um, so I was in America for a few months and then I got sent to Europe to do the same job in um, the Netherlands and Germany. Um, and it was incredibly difficult to do a sales job in a country where I didn't speak the language. And so I got them to like, can I uh, convinced my boss to like let me come back after like a month and then went back to America for like I don't know a few weeks or a month yeah yeah and then you came back to Australia yeah and this is where you became a makeup artist yes so I studied special effects makeup like um it was just like I think I just wanted to do something creative I there was there was still like that part like all my friends at that point my closest friends were working as stylists or makeup artists or like in the fashion industry. Like I had a friend that was one of my actual bridesmaids. She was working at Vogue at the time. And I just felt like, okay, this is like, this is what I do, I guess. So I chose makeup, like not really because I have any desire to do glamour makeup or anything. It was really just for the creative aspect of it. So like special effects. So, you know, gory injuries or zombies or some creative fashion shoots or anything like that. So that was really what I focused on and I worked for it as a little bit, but then then the travel bug got me again. <laughs> and so where did you head to next? And how did you decide it was how did how did that travel bug come back? How did you decide it was time to I, just you, well I think I was just pushing to be be and do and live a life that really just didn't feel right to me. And it worked for a little bit, but then it just all got too much and I was like, no, that's it. I'm leaving. So I decided to sell everything and just get ready to go. And when an opportunity presented itself, I was going to go. So I found a job at Uluru, like um, working as a tour guide and driving like a coach. <laughs> and I looked at the job description. It paid really well, way more than I was going to make in a short time in Sydney. And I thought, well, there's not going to be anything for me to spend money on here. So I'll be able to save money. I'll be able to go there, save money and go back overseas. And I looked at like what they needed in, in this like coach driver tour guide. And I was like, well, I can do all of those things, except I just need a truck license. So I just quickly went in, out and got a truck license and like a one day course in like Western Sydney. <laughs> and it was, yeah, funny. And then I like drove to Uluru and I got to Uluru and I realized, wow, 
I'm not that good at this. <laughs> I have all these lives in my head. Yeah, exactly. Um, this might have been a really bad idea. <laughs> Can we just jump back? I just want to tease apart that moment where you were saying that you were trying to live this life that you thought you should be living in Sydney, um, but it just wasn't working for you. So I suppose, and I feel like that's that's something we can all experience is that you kind of, there's this almost like this recipe for life that you kind of grow up learning that like, this is how it just pans out and what yeah. the steps you take, but it doesn't always fit. So how, can you just talk me through that a bit more about what you were trying to do and, and how you kind of came to accept that you're like, this isn't working? Um, I don't. It's it's funny because it wasn't like a just a concrete thing. It was just like a general, like, uncontent feeling, you know. Um, I, you know, just being in traffic all the time, it made me so angry. Like, it made me really irritated and and just grumpy. And I, um, you know, always just felt like I needed to be distracting myself. Like, I needed to be buying something or going out or just anything, you know, really to distract myself from the fact that I was just like surrounded by <laughs> 4 million people. And um, I guess like I sort of started to realize then that the common denominator with the experiences overseas that I love so much was like the remoteness of of those places and like really the fact that it was like country or remote or rural sort of life that I really was drawn to. And um and I thought I, I I guess I began to think then, look, maybe it's not that I hate living in Australia, like maybe it's just Sydney that's the problem. And like many Sydney siders, I'd never really like I don't think I'd ever been further west than Dubbo. <laughs> I didn't really even know or think about what was out there. Like a lot of I think a lot of young Australians don't. Definitely in big cities they just um yeah, go to Europe straight away or Southeast Asia. You know, they don't think about traveling around Australia, and I definitely hadn't. And, and but when it occurred to me, I was like, "Oh, this is actually sounds like it could be really awesome and fun." <laughs> when you were younger, growing up in Sydney, did you have that same response to the traffic and the amount of people, or was that something like growing up you didn't even notice and it was just normal? You were fine with it, and it was kind of once you went away and came back. I think I didn't really notice it so much because I sort of – so the little, like, suburb I grew up in was very um, – it was just surrounded by national parks, one road in, one road out. The primary school I went to had 250 or 300 students. It was like a small school. It felt like a country town in a lot of ways, I yeah. guess. Um, but, like, as you get older, you know, like, you go to high school and, like, I always hated being on public transport with lots of people and, um, and you know, just surrounded – just surrounded by people I didn't like that but you know as you get older and you have to like go and start and work in the city or wherever like uh, you know there was one point where I was driving like two hours one way to work just Ooh. through Sydney and it's just just awful so I guess I didn't notice it so much as a child like I definitely loved it when we would like go and visit our friends farms and that was always super appealing to me um but I just didn't really consider it as an option I don't think it really is presented as an option like agriculture's not presented as an option. No, and I think – and then when people 
I know my experience when you start to explore it, you kind of get this impression that, well, if you're not born into it or if you haven't had a lot of experience yeah. in it, then it's definitely not an option. Yeah, 100%. Um, but you didn't let that stop you. You just hooked straight in and went from Sydney to Alice, was it? Or, or did you say yeah, Uluru? Alice and Uluru. So, um, yeah, um, Uluru was like, yeah, where I had this job that I realised I was really bad at. <laughs> um, I can't actually drive a heavy vehicle like fairly competently now, but like, I mean, I'd had one, one day of lessons and like, yeah, Western Sydney was a bit, yeah, not exactly, not exactly a great introduction. People must have been so, um, not, you know, run with stereotypes. So I feel like when you get on a coach, like a tourist coach, it's generally an old man who's wearing like knee socks and short shorts. Oh yeah. I had so many, like, cause there's been times where between like, camel staff or cow staff or whatever you know i've done two guiding jobs um and like i still hate to drive a coach but if i'm like forced by somebody like they're like we really need you to do this i'll be like oh, fine but yeah there's definitely been times where like i've had particularly like older men get on the bus to be like geez it must be easy to get your license here and stuff like that which is like oh. pretty offensive <laughs> um, <laughs> and comments of that that um nature <laughs> and so it was in alice or uluru like central australia i always i always for the longest time i thought uluru was like in alice springs oh yeah everybody like, does. growing up and yeah, then you no. realize it's like 400k's west yeah, or something yeah, 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 yeah it's quite a distance yeah. but so when you were we'll just say when you're in central australia yeah. that's kind of that's where the camels yeah so i, I was driving around um the sort of like resort area at uluru um and thinking to myself like what have I done what am I gonna do now <laughs> and then I literally saw like three guys like riding over a sand dune on camels and I found out later they were just going to the pub um but like I, I think I actually stopped my car in the middle of the street and I was like I want to do that and um so I went to the camel farm and like convinced them to give me a job um you know, sort of exaggerated my horse experience a little bit. And, <laughs> and, um, and I got a job with them. So I just, I, you know, at first I just thought it was going to be something like a funny story one day. But as I sort of started to learn more about camels, I just became more and more fascinated about them. There's so many things that are just so weird, but so strategic. Like they're just so energetically efficient and the way that they act, they're so, they're just so different from any other animal that I'd really interacted with with before um they're so so smart direct drilling is a locally owned family drilling company based in kananara servicing the kimberley and northern territory all drillers are nationally licensed with the australian drilling industry association ensuring best practice the protection of water resources and guaranteeing the life of the bore find out more at directdrill.com.au so what was that in that first job what did you actually have to do with the camels um just like I had to like ride, like do camel rides. So like we would leading, saddle so just up. leading them around. No, we would ride them. Oh, yeah, we would like ride them into the dunes. Um, and like with tourists, like yeah, with like tourists. one of those like camel trains. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And you got to ride them. Yeah, I'm thinking just the ones every they, day. the ones they do up in Broome. Like I'm pretty sure it's like, there's just a person that's leading the camels, like leading the yeah. camel train. So they they actually have to walk and like yeah, and no, I stuff that. No, we rode. <laughs> Or sometimes, honestly, like sometimes you would get bored of riding, so you would try and walk. Yeah. Um, but like just for the exercise, because we would just rode camels, like 
so often, just all all day <laughs> sort of thing. Um, yeah, and I don't know because I was obviously tour guiding, had to learn a lot about camels, and yeah, they were just fascinating to me. Now you've done a lot of stuff with camels since then, but not all of it on your own. So is this the part of the story where we will introduce the boy and then we'll get yes, back to camels? Yes. So, um, so. My friend came and visited me at Uluru and I hadn't gone and seen Kings Canyon, which is kind of like in Central Australia. It's kind of the like tourism trifecta is like Alice, Uluru and Kings Canyon. And um, I just said, let's go. Like I haven't been. And so I just called up the local tourism cattle station and booked accommodation for that night so we could go to the canyon in the morning. So we like drove out there. And that evening um, I met um, – like a bunch of people, and one of the guys was a cam- was the camelier on the station. And um, anyway, the next morning he in- introduced me to his brother, and I thought his brother looked like a pretty all right son. <laughs> and and, um, and uh, obviously the feeling was mutual because um, a couple of we like met, and then a couple of months later he sent me a message like, "Oh, where are you?" And I was like, "In Al Springs." And he's like, cool, do you want to go out for dinner sometime? And I said, yes, what about tomorrow? Like, just being obnoxious. <laughs> like, And he was like, okay. So, anyways, this is Evan. So, Evan drove 500 kilometers or something like that to, like, go on our first date. <laughs> and about a month and a half later, I was, like, living and working on the cattle station with him because he was, like, the manager. Yeah, That is, like, one of the greatest things I've ever heard. You're like, <laughs> yeah, come to town. Tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I was I've got one opening in my calendar. I was just like being cheeky and um I did actually only have one opening because I like had to go on tour because I was tour guiding. Like I was in that few months there over the summer I was um I was doing like backpacker tours and just like camping out every night. That was definitely not something I expected myself to be doing. But anyway, um he yeah, so it literally was the only opening and so he came and we hit it off pretty quickly and we figured like rather than driving a thousand kilometers, like return every time to see each other and then finding out in a year that actually we hate each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was just like, it was almost like just an economical decision <laughs> just like to save ourselves fuel. And then so, so Evan worked with horses and cattle. Yeah. And on a, on a cattle station. Yeah. So he like spent the majority, like he's done like stock contract. I mean, he started working on stations when he was like 15 or 16, like finished his schooling, school of the air. Like um, he's been in it for a long time. Um, he he spent probably 10 years on and off at Kings Creek Station, which is where we um, was the first station I worked on. And, uh, you know, he was the leading hand or the manager for most of that time. Yeah. So, but at Kings Creek Station, it's not really, it's actually just been sold. So I don't know what they'll do now, but um, Ian Conway, who started that station, pretty much like started it from a little shed that he has family in and he made all his money um, catching wild camels and selling them. In the 90s, it was like quite a big business to be selling camels to the Middle East on planes and stuff like that, sending planes full of camels over to the Middle East. And so, you know, he, he made all his money like that and he still just loved feral animal mustering and so there was like a huge amount of that because we were surrounded by indigenous land and national parks so we would like often be asked to go and muster brumbies i think um camels and obviously like feral cattle so i think there was about twenty thousand brumbies within a hundred kilometers of like the station and those brumbies were descended from 
um, the Boer War and World War One. So yeah, so pretty like cool horses. But yeah, basically, um, I learnt everything about mustering with just ferals, and um, and and like largely camels. <laughs> what did the horses look like? Were they? Because I've been on some places where they've had brumbies, and they're like, you know, they kind of. I guess back in the day they had like some whaler and whatnot. You know, yeah. But now they're kind of, it's not the greatest country and they're kind of like little runty, like yucky looking inbred things. But then other places you can go and they're like actually nice. Like, no, they're amazing. Really? Like, yeah. And like every color under the sun, they're like very true whalers. Like the whaler society would like ask Evan a lot of people from there. I don't know. You have to ask him about it more because like he's definitely the horsey yeah. professional in this relationship. Um, but yeah, there's, um, I just know that they're really pretty. <laughs> no, there's like there's all kinds of colors. I mean, like I've seen every color under the sun out there. Like there's like, you know, pintos and um, duns and like obviously like bays and palominos and like silver taffies and just everything. And they're not really short, like sort of Victorian um, brummies. You know, they get they have a fair bit of height. Yeah. You know, they're not like a thoroughbred, but like you know they've got a reasonable amount of height and. Yeah, they're really hardy little horses. Like they, the there was like a a university that went out there and did a lot of research um, on those particular brumbies. Um, Evan helped out a lot with that, and yeah, their their feet were three times thicker than a normal horse's, and and stuff like that. They had more veins in their feet. Um, they did a lot of laminitis research out there, and they couldn't work out why they weren't getting laminitis, and then they realized they were. It was just that their like feet were thick enough to basically live through it and be fine um so they're again like a really amazing animal to yeah learn about and and so you were working so like doing the mustering of like feral animals but camels you're still doing camel stuff on yeah that station. yeah so they so that was like a tourism station so um i so evan's brother left and i started doing the camel like the camel rides there but like there was only two camels that were trained for rides there and you know i'd only been working with camels for like less than six months and um he was like oh it's fine i'll help you train the new ones and i think he did for like three days and then he got like busy as like station blokes do and i was kind of like just left there to like work out how to train camels by myself and i would ask ian you know because he'd been working with camels i don't even know like 40 years or something and um he's like if you get irritated with them, you just need to sit down and have a cup of tea. Like, don't take it out on them. They'll never forgive you. And so I um, had a lot of cups of tea <laughs> to start with. And then uh, somebody spoke – somebody sort of told me that they had the intelligence of a seven-year-old child. And I don't know if the word intelligence is, like, the right one. I think problem-solving skills of a seven-year-old child is probably more accurate. But they – I decided to start kind of treating them like – they were that age and it kind of worked wonders for me. So if they did the wrong thing, I put them in timeout. If they – and, like, that sounds so silly, but it's honestly so effective. Like, if a camel does the wrong thing, they're smart enough to know why and you put them in timeout, like, just tie them to a tree and leave them by themselves, come back in an hour and they'll be like – like, you can see it in their face, like, I will never do that again. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I really just – kind of had to learn a lot fast and by myself and it was honestly probably the best thing because you know if I just had somebody do it for me I wouldn't have learned 
so much. And so what do you do when you've got like a brand new fresh wild camel and – so when you when you go on camel rides, are they – they've got like halters on or bridles? Like don't, yeah, halters. So, no, you never like put a bit in a camel? So because they ruminate, mm-hmm. if you can't put a bit in their mouth, they'll like choke. Oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, So a lot of people nose peg their camels. Um, I think it's like a legal requirement for – tourism or maybe not legal but like an insurance requirement they have to have nose pegs in your camels um we don't really use them anymore personally but um like i mean like a lot of things they can be used in a way that's really ethical and really fine but i've definitely seen people be way too rough with them too yeah i wouldn't let somebody um i didn't trust like use a nose peg on a camel yeah i mean so you've got wild camels and you're having to halt to train them. Yep. And you've never, you know, you've got your little bit of horse experience, but even then. Like, not really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then a little bit of like just leading camels around from like the, the job before. Yeah. Like what do you, how do you figure that out? Especially because as people will pick up from the beginning of this episode, like they can be bloody dangerous animals and yeah. they're not, it, it's not like working, you know, if you work sheep, you can kind of work cattle and vice versa. Well, you know, they're not, it's not like working any other big animal. No, though. like they'll do stuff like if you try and chase them, they'll often turn around and look at you. So, like, I mean, that's just one of the ways that they conserve energy. Like, if you frighten a horse or, like, you know, a horse is a better example, like they'll just run before they think about it. Like, a camel will turn around, assess the risk, and then decide whether or not to um, waste their energy by running away. So, you know, I think a lot of people think that they're really stupid because, like, they try and, like, push them or they try and put pressure on them. And it's just – you still do pressure and release with camels, like, 100%. Like, that's, you know, the basis of, like, the way that, you know, I train them or we train them. Um, but it, you put a pressure like pressure on in different ways. Yeah, so people think that they are really stupid because, you know, they do things like turn around and look at you, but it's not actually stupid. It's actually just an energy conservation thing. Yeah. And so, like, how do you even – I mean, I guess if you were learning to break in a horse, you could YouTube some, like, Paparelli or Rayhan or, like, anybody mm-hmm. and, like, you know, buy DVDs or whatever and it, like, there's that, that doesn't exist for camels, does it? No. No. Um, and it's not like you can, like, I guess with a horse, I guess you could also try and, like, I don't know, there's other ways um, – at least they can put their head down and you can, like, kind of get near them. But, like, camels, they just, like, reach up high. Like, you can't, you can't yeah. make them come to you. Like- no, yeah. Like, I um, I definitely, like, had to learn. I, honestly, I must have looked so ridiculous. It took me so – I made so many mistakes. I, I did so many things that are wrong that I can, like, look back now and be like, oh, God. But, you know, I definitely learned a lot by doing that. I mean, the first time I – managed to like rope a wild camel there was like a bull that had like come in from across the road and nobody was around so um i just i didn't really lasso it but um just like managed to get a rope on it and then i chased it into the yards um that was the first time i thought i could buy an (laughs) akubra like i thought i needed to like earn it like i didn't really feel like i could like come from sydney and had have any business like going around (laughs) Yeah. So that was like when I thought, okay, I've earned this now. Um, but yeah, I mean, traditionally, like in Australia, like there's definitely a lot of like lassoing and um, it's a bit rough. It's like old school horse training. Um, I like definitely did 
like a little bit of that, but I was by myself. So it's not like, I mean, um, it's possible, but it's extremely difficult to rope a wild bull camel by yourself and like throw it on the ground and get a halter on sort of thing. Um, so I kind of just had to do a lot of cheat, a lot of cheating and take it really slowly, but it was good because it definitely like helped me to build bonds with the camels. And that's really probably the most important thing. Like when you're working with camels, like they're very picky on who they'll work with. If you have a new person come in, they'll test them out and, um, you have to assert your like authority kind of constantly. Um, but if you have like a rapport with them, it works out a lot better. Um, but they will like grow to love you. Um, like when I've been in the Middle East with like Bedouins and stuff like that and these old Bedouins that just live with their camels all the time. What's that word? Sorry. Bedouins. And what are they? So Bedouins are um, basically like nomadic desert people. Okay. Because you were just like when I was in the Middle East with, and I just heard better ones. I was like, oh, the better cat, <laughs> no, the no. better, the better camels, like better ones. No, no, yeah, well, they are better camels there, but yeah, um, no, um, with the better ones, they will like, you know, that if if they live with their camels all the time and they leave, like the camels will like cry and and call call for them, um, because they like really love them, and then when you come back, they'll like literally run up. I've seen it, and they'll hug them, like they wrap their necks around the Aww. the people, and so they really do like like learn to love you. So there's a fine line. I guess it's like kids in a lot of ways, like yeah. you want them to love you and like respect you, but you also like have to draw, um, draw a line so they don't like take advantage of you or um, yeah. develop bad habits because they are enormous and have the potential to be incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So it's like, I guess like being a parent, like you don't, you want to like, love your kids or whatever but you can't like just be their friend all the time yeah you, you can't like be their spoil leader. them yeah 100 yeah. like if they do the wrong thing you have to call them out like but also you can't unjustly punish them like it's um it's like a really sort of well-known camel thing that if you like beat a camel um they will wait and they'll get revenge on you um like oh, i had God. a friend and she had to castrate her own camels um and six months later, one of them, like, broke her hip. Yeah, just was so mad about it. Like, I mean, I don't think it's even legal to, like, castrate without pain relief, but this was, like, fairly, like, maybe 20 years ago she told me that this had happened. And, um, yeah, so you have to definitely be careful. And not that I ever, like, wanted to, like, mercilessly beat them or anything, but, like, um, they will definitely, like, if you do the wrong thing and you punish them for it, like, put them in timeout or something like that they'll sort of accept it but if you do something that's unreasonable or unjust like they won't accept that it's quite funny wow i'm just thinking about yesterday when i rocked up here and you hadn't come home yet and i also because the camel well no the camel was standing up at first but then he laid down but i hadn't had a chance to see if it was like a girl or a boy <laughs> so meanwhile i'm like just let myself into the yard and was like patting this camel <laughs> and part of me was like oh i think this thing could kill me if it wanted to i was like but i'm massaging its head like it must love me like no he <laughs> won't do anything when he's like in that relaxed That's- mode yeah he like, like just gets his doughy look in his eyes and like starts I like go to sleep. not go and do that with everyone's camels though like yeah no definitely definitely they might not all react that <laughs> way <laughs> and so then did you so eventually though you managed to get evan into camels as well yeah i mean he'd worked with them for years but like i think he like a lot of people just didn't like got irritated by them and stuff like that but because like i obviously loved them so much like um 
I mean, and he did too in a lot of ways, but obviously, like, you know, he loved horses, like, loved cows. Um, I don't know. I guess I definitely um, convinced him to sort of, I guess, pay more attention to camels. And we ended up traveling overseas a lot, like, to India. We did a camel trek in India. And, like, we got invited to a camel conference in um, the United Arab Emirates and spent, like, a lot of time with, like, Bedouins and their camels there and we just like learned a lot and it just became more interesting to both of us and I guess like his experience with um you know catching wild camels and then my experience with like being a vet nurse and um and then like you know riding camels and liking that sort of just snowballed together and like when we sort of yeah as our relationship developed yeah I think like literally snowballed we ended up just going on this like really big camel journey together for a while. <laughs> and so you guys did one of those camel trips. So you did the camel trek in India. Yes. Did you do them anywhere else? Um, Australia. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we did um, – I really want to do some more, but anyway, they're still on the to-do list. But um, the camel trek that we did in Australia, we um, we went from – well, we trained the camels on a cattle station that was kind of near Uluru. And then we trekked them to Alice Springs and um, we spent a few months in Alice um, just like fixing up the wagon. Like, so we built a wagon so that they could pull the wagon. Um, and we, and we just like sort of spent time in Alice Springs sort of fixing that up. Like two weeks before we left on the trek, actually, we like just cut the whole top of it off, like rebuilt it from scratch. And um, it was, yeah, kind of, um, probably biting off a little bit more than we can chew but anyway um we did it so that was fine and then we went to the Alice Springs Camel Cup and we competed in that and then we left and we trekked all the way down the old overland telegraph line like Udendada track and sort of followed the path of like the original cameleers in that area um and a lot of like the concept of our trek was that you know camels had been brought into Australia to help the outback and so we wanted to sort of put them back in that position and so we raised money for um, drought relief through Aussie Helpers and, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. We trekked about 2,000 kilometres altogether. What do you do? Um, because obviously I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with the movie Tracks. I actually haven't seen it mm. or the book. You know, it was a book first, I suppose. And then even at the moment there's kind of this girl on Facebook that's doing, you know, apparently I thought it was like, I was like, wow, like, People like I didn't think many people did this, but apparently it's a thing and people do do it. Yeah. What do you do when you get to the end of your camel trek? Do you just be like, okay, we're here. Like, someone call me like an Uber for like my camels, or do yeah. you like have to turn around and trek back? Um. Well, we trekked to um, sort of like the area where Evan grew up, so he had a lot of family there that had property. So we kind of like begged them to use <laughs> like a paddock and um we put them in there <laughs> until we found a place to live and yeah oh so then you just like once you got to the end of your trek like, we you were planning there. to say in south oh, australia like that okay. was our plan yeah so yeah. normally like if you were going to do any of these other ones do you just like is it like a one-way trip or do you just kind of have to, like, I mean, make it a loop thing just guess it depends on what you want to do but i mean like i think a lot of people just get a truck yeah, okay. Track them back, yeah. Now, speaking of your camel trek, um, you guys, you know, and how most people's reference point will be the movie tracks. You guys actually worked on that movie, didn't you? Yes, we did. 
so um, a large part of it was filmed at Kings Creek Station when we um, were still working there. And so um, we helped um, sort of find and, and capture um, the wild camels that were used in that movie. So um, that was kind of interesting because we basically had to find body doubles for the um, – quiet camels that they were using in the trek. So we had to like catch a whole bunch of wild camels and then find like the doppelgangers of, of the domesticated camels. So that like when they filmed the um, scenes, it would have like real reactions. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then the scene where um, she shoots the camel. Well, obviously we didn't really do that. I mean, when I watched the movie, I can't believe how real actually looked like how much it really looked like that camel. I love it. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm like, she she shoots the camel? Yeah, like-, like the wild camel. So, okay, so if you're doing a camel trek, like you have to be prepared to be um, sort of accosted by wild yeah. bull camels, particularly in winter. Obviously, a lot of people trek in winter because – Cooler. Yeah. So that is when male camels go into season or rut and they basically just fight and – mate for that entire season to the point where like they come out of rut generally because they literally can't physically maintain it anymore so they just literally don't eat enough to then they lose a lot of weight and they fight all the other bulls so they can win a harem and and that sort of thing um so if you're trekking with camels you um you need to be prepared to protect your camels from those wild camels we were we were pretty lucky because we um were in a wagon so they were less attracted to them and we also had um we had a baby female camel who wasn't very interesting and we had three large bull camels so we didn't uh, we had a couple of issues but we never had to like kill any camels mm-hmm. um we would have if we'd needed to but we didn't so we we didn't um but yeah in in Robin Davidson's book Tracks and in the, in the movie, um, they depict the scene where she was charged by a bull camel. And, um, and so we caught those camels so that we could do that scene where she was being charged with the camels. And the way that we did that was, um, we got some female camels and basically put a yard with some bull camels like way out in the distance and, um, just let them like, go towards yeah. the female camels. And we said to the director of the movie, you're going to need to get this in one take because there's no way in hell we're going to be able to catch these, like, yeah. again. But we actually did. Like, we recaught them, like, eight times, I think, and, like, redid the scene. Um, and um, Evan, Evan's actually, like, got a credit in the film um, um, as a camel catcher. Um, you know, he had to grow this, like, long hair and long beard so he looked like he was like a 70s sort of territory and <laughs> camel ear feral sort of thing and um and i um did like some stunt double work for the like for the girl who played robin so i had to like wear a blonde wig and get into a yard with a wild camel i ended up getting injured like not badly but like badly enough that i said you better freaking put this in the movie because like I literally just like <laughs> got like smashed up against a fence by a wild camel so that that would be great if you could just at least at least put it in the movie but they didn't so that was just all for point. nothing all yeah. for nothing <laughs> <laughs> and so so really it, and like you said before it just snowballed into camels like yeah. so you guys you you worked on the station then you 
did the movie, yeah. worked on the movie, then you did your trek down to South Australia. Yeah. And then oh, Yeah, before that we got like invited to a camel conference in the Middle East. So they're like Sheikh of Abu Dhabi's um cultural advisor, like invited us to come. How did they even find you? Um in the middle of nowhere. Friend. Yeah, through another camel friend. So like we got flown over there and just we stayed in the camp with all the Bedouins, like we were there during Christmas and everything. Um, and yeah, there was, we just went to camel beauty competitions and camel milking competitions and camel races and the camel markets. And it was just like the best, honestly. <laughs> and, um, and, and we just got to talk about camels like nonstop without anyone getting bored or angry. Cause <laughs> <laughs> like, as I'm sure some pastors no listening yeah. to this are like, Shut up, we hate camels. But um, anyway, so over there, like, it's nice because I feel like people get it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that was really cool. Um, and, yeah, and then we just then we went on our trek. And so that that visit overseas as well did that like give you a lot of drive to come back and kind of just keep going with camels and yeah, I think so because like we realized that there was such a shortage of camels um, in the world. In the Middle East, the government actually has to, like, pay people to send their camels to slaughter because there's just not enough to meet the meat demand, like, in the Gulf region um, or in the Emirates, at least. I know that that's, um, that's the case. Um, in India, um, the sort of indigenous camel people there are currently, like, being basically, like, persecuted by the government. Um, there's a really world-famous... Um, camel festival like called the pushka camel festival and um the camels there like have 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 been like um slaughtered to the point where they actually didn't really have enough camels to do the festival anymore um so there is like definitely a demand and it's always been the case of being in the camel industry i mean the camel industry is almost non-existent and it's extremely difficult to get it to get it going and like i know like that there will definitely be pretty much everybody that listens to this like cattle station people will be like there's nowhere to sell them and that's exactly right that that's true um there isn't um there's like one abattoir i think left in australia that does um camels and um but to me it's always been like i've always looked at it like okay so we live in an arid country and we have these animals here that thrive during drought like other animals dying like maybe even kangaroos are dying and the camels are still um, persisting and it's like a steak or beef adjacent meat. It's like pretty much got like the same amount of iron, way less fat. It's like a free range organic, like red yeah. meat source. Um, and you know, like the way that the world is going, there's you know potentially going to be protein, like already is protein shortages in a lot of part of the world. And so, even though logically. I understand that there's not the infrastructure there for the camel industry right now. Like even just stuff like the Australian market is not, is not there. Um, but to me, um, it's just always seemed illogical to, to see them like culled and rotting wasted. in the desert. It's yeah, just, just a waste. A waste. Yeah. And that's just like gross to me. I hate, I hate waste. Yeah. Um, At even the very though- least you'd think you'd like let pet meat you know, people going. Yeah, and- like, I mean, I think there's, like, some aspects of that, but there's still, you know, it's still not going to make a difference. But, um, I mean, 
They have to be managed, but they shouldn't be wasted. Like it's fine in that yes. balance. Do you think a part of it is because, say, cattle, sheep, and I guess to an extent horses, like back in the day when we were settling Australia or whatnot, and that's when we were building all the infrastructure and developing the markets and the systems and every, and the industries around that. And now we're of a generation where we're used to like it's everything's been set up and we just kind of we're not having to start anything from scratch. We're just mm. working with what we've already always had. Yeah. For us, whereas if we really want to get this camel thing going, like it's gonna be like from ground zero. Exactly. Building There's, up again. Yeah. Like that's hard. Like I know it's that sounds really so, no, it's yeah. really, really hard. And like um honestly, like Evan and I have done the hard slog. Like we we <laughs> Yeah, we've done, we've done like so much to like sort of try and help the camel dairy industry. I mean, like I've definitely, um, I'm sure we're about to talk about this, but like with, um, our work in the camel dairy industry and consulting with different camel dairies, like I feel like, okay, I've made a difference there. There's, there's been some productivity brought about, um, there, but like then there's still the rest of the camels in Australia that need to, need somewhere to go. Um, honestly, we need somebody like the person who started the Angus beef campaign. Yeah. Yeah. To like come in and just advertise camel meat. It's, um, you almost need like that angel investor to just come in and like mm. put that money in there just so it's done. Like you need that yeah. capital so you can get some of this stuff going. Yeah. And then for them not to like need their return. I mean, anything can ag is a long term investment anyway, but you know, yeah. to really stick with it and then just so you can get it going. And then it's like, it's like with a lot of things, I suppose, even in the beef industry, like pain relief or whatever, you know, somebody will do it first and we'll all watch and sit back and wait for someone else to do it mm. and let them like waste or, you know, or irrigation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they'll, we'll let them sit back and watch and like regenerative make, agriculture. Yeah. Make, yeah. make yeah. their mistakes, lose some money, trial and error. Yeah. And then when they've got it, then everyone's like, Oh, okay, we'll give it a go now. Yeah. Like, but you know, you don't want to be that person that is the one making the mistakes and losing the money, but you need yeah. that person to. Yeah. I mean, I've been that person. <laughs> no, but um, in all seriousness, like even like just having somebody it, like put it out there. Like I didn't know that camels, we even had camels in Australia, like until I moved to Central Australia. Nobody knows. Like a lot of people that I know now know that, but they didn't know. Yeah. And so it's not even an option. And I think um, I, I think it's a really appealing option, especially to that like um market of people that like, I'm saying this inverted commas because you know She's my feelings about this, yeah. but like aren't eating red meat for environmental reasons, which like let's not even start. But it, it is so um, it, it just as they are, even wild capture, not even farming them, like yeah. wild capture of camels is such a marketable meat product. It is just a free rent. Like everyone's all about like wild caught fish and like you know in america like wild caught deer or bison like it's a it's a big thing in the health yeah. health sort of movement um you know there's just so many so you just need i suppose not just the infrastructure but there's a huge skill set that's lacking because yes. what i've picked up from talking to you over the past day is that you can't treat a camel like a cow or no. a horse or a sheep whereas you know i start off with horses and then kind of figured my way out around cows and then sheep. Like you can kind of like, you know, borrow bits and pieces. But some of the things you've said about camels, like they're just, like you said, it's, it's probably easier to imagine yourself like working with an elephant. Yeah. Like I've, I've had clients ask me before to train their camels to behave more like cows. And 
I mean, at that point, I just wanted to like just dust my hands off and walk away. But I mean, I eventually did. But anyway, um, and um, yeah, the other day I was speaking to someone who wanted to, you know, wanted my help consulting them starting a camel dairy. And I said to them, you need like I'll um, like I didn't end up taking the project, but I basically said to them, if I'm going to consider working with you, I need you to understand from the jump that you you are starting something that's going to be more similar to like starting a wild elephant dairy than starting something that's similar to a cow dairy. Like just forget everything that you know about milking cows and start to think about the fact that there's really nothing in common there except that you're getting like white stuff out and they've got four legs um, because it's not going to be the same at all. So tell me, tell us about some of the stuff, the differences between camels and ca- and cattle, like with from your time working in camel dairies and, you know, having to set up um, systems where, you know, you, it was best for the camels, you know, not just from an animal welfare perspective, but from a productivity, because mm. there were different things that you can do that you had to do for the camels that you don't necessarily need to do for cattle. Yeah. Like they have different needs. Yeah. So like the first thing is... Um, that camels can withhold their milk if they choose to. So it's, um, they have to like actually physically release the milk. Whereas, I mean, I think there's some, some aspect of that with like dairy cattle, but it's not definitely not the same. Um, and also, I mean, in Australia, we're just getting wild camels out of the desert. I mean, now, um, now I can recognize the phenotype of a wild camel and, pretty much like mostly accurately guess what their milk production rates will be. But like, like that's, that's a difficult thing to t- a teach somebody or be even like work out. Obviously you need to like go through a lot of camels to work that out. So some of them might only produce one liter a day and some might produce like nine liters a day. And so you have to like pick the right camel um, because we don't have 500 years of, genetics yeah exactly and even in the middle east like the camels that they've been milking for a long time they're still they they still have a lot of these issues so um so that had that consistency within the genetics yeah like i mean they they've bred camels for milking but they still have like different behavioral and nutritional needs so Mm -hmm. um so for a start you need the camels to be super relaxed so getting camels out of the wild is and getting them to be the, at the point where they're relaxed is um, the first challenge. So when Evan and I finished our camel trek, um, we ended up in South Australia and we wanted to work out um, the best way or the least invasive, least stressful way that and quickest way that we could bulk train wild camels for dairy production. So we bought a group of camels, we divided them into four and we developed four training programs for each group of camels and we implemented that training program with each group of camels just so we had one group where we trained more traditionally. So, you know, halters and ropes. Like a lot of ca- – because a lot of camel dairies in the West use – and even um, even some Middle Eastern camel dairies actually as well, they use halters for their camels. But we thought, well, what other dairy animal – needs to be halter trained to be milked. So we um, decided to try and train a, a couple of groups without without that. So, um, yeah, we basically had like a sort of a scale of um, 
intensity. Ropes, yeah. Tra- you know, and then at the other end we had no ropes at all, um, just pure body language training. And so we, we worked out that actually, yeah, you can just like train them just purely with body language. So what we um, do is put them into a round yard and camels can learn a vocal command in like 10 to 15 minutes, like a wild camel, you can teach them to sit on command in like 15 minutes. Um, they're really smart. They totally get it. Um, so we would teach them stop and go to start with. And then basically we just build up like kind of like a horse, but camels are really responsive to verbal commands. So, um, they're like very vocal with each other. So we used a lot of vocal commands, especially because we thought about, um, you know, if you're like moving a group of camels into, into the dairy, you can like tell them stop, go, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, so we just basically built up to that until we could just touch them all over and like make it like a pleasant experience with when you're training camels, they like wild camels in particular, like one thing that I was like made very aware of by, um, uh, by training, you know, my sort of mistakes that I made was like the one thing that wild camels want is to be left is for you to leave them alone. Um, so that is really like you know, the reward. I mean, I suppose, you know, if you're working cattle, it's similar, like they just want to be left alone. Um, so that is kind of the reward. And so, um, and we just use that as the reward until they eventually like being like touched and scratched and patted. Um, and then that becomes the reward, but you just basically build from there. I mean, it's very similar. Like if you do like natural horsemanship or anything like that, but just sort of, um, adapted to camel body language, Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. And so what are the other differences? I love it must sound so silly. Like what are the differences between camels and cows? One has a hump. Oh, no, we're brahmins. Yeah. Well, aside from one has like a really long neck and is like – beautiful eyelashes um and will also pick you up and like can stomp you to death um yeah, rather than just charge you yeah um what else are the differences like you know when you're when you're trying to work with them in a production sense they are extremely emotionally intelligent and have really strong familial bonds so sometimes camels like if their baby dies or if they have a miscarriage they will like just die from the grief I've seen one camel have a stillborn and just cry and scream for like two weeks and we couldn't take the body like away because she was just so hysterical. So one thing we had to really learn was like if we had any, we, I mean, it really, I think it happened like twice. Like we had a camel that like had a stillborn calf, but we just like took it away instantly because like if they have too long to like realize what's going on, they're better off being confused than like devastated. Because yeah, they'll just they'll just absolutely go go bananas. But yeah, if you take their baby away, they'll stop producing milk. So one of the ways that we encourage them to go into the dairy is like, um, well, firstly, the mums and babies like would live together, and we um, sort of put together a system where the babies we had basically like feral fencing in between, so like we could control how much milk the babies were having, and we supplemented them in other like their diet in other ways. But we would put put the babies through the dairy first and put them in a pen in the front of the dairy so the mums would want to walk towards it. So we just tried to make it like as camel friendly. We even did things like um, 
put sand right before they walked into the dairy, um, into the dairy and camels just loved to roll in sand. And so that was like a really relaxing thing for them. Like to the point where sometimes like camels, not all the time, but occasionally they would like start to just like squirt milk everywhere. And then they, when they'd be like rolling in the sand, you'd be like, Oh no, like stop it. Like camel milk's so expensive. Like so you'd be like, stop it. Like that's like 20 bucks. You've just like squirted all over the ground. Um, yeah. So, um, there's that. Obviously, like they eat in there, like I mean, that's similar to a cow dairy. Um, but yeah, just I think the biggest difference is the fact that you really have to maintain the relationship between the um, not only the calf and the mum, but also like if you keep a herd together, it, you can't take out an unproductive herd member because it will just throw them all out of whack. They're very like hierarchical, but they also just like love each other and are best friends. And if you take one out, they'll cry and carry on, and their milk production just like will half. Yeah, it's just, it's so different to cows and how you handle cows. I'm wondering when you say, you know, the grief they feel, um, and I'm a bit hesitant to get into this line of, of conversation because I can already like anticipate some of the eye rolls from, from people, not, <laughs> not prejudging anyone, but you know, I, I have enough friends to know. I would, I would at least in my friend circle have people be like, whatever stuff, but, yeah. um, so you say, you know, if they have a stillborn or, you know, you take their calf away, yeah. um, they will be quite emotional. If you, if you, you take someone out of the herd structure, um, they, um, you know, that changes the structure and the social dynamics and they, you know, that will upset them as well. And there's impacts from that flow on effects when, okay, we'll keep this on brief because I know it's going to be controversial, but when, when we do camel culls and like at the end of the day, animals need to be managed and if and if we can't get our stuff together to get a market for them and, and manage them that way you know and they're getting cold and you're they're in groups and you're shooting them and they're getting shot in front of each other like mm. I suppose like ideally they're all going to get shot so it shouldn't really matter because they're all not gonna but if there are if you do shoot some and then others live like or if you let's say you're on a camel farm and you needed to euthanize one and you it's in the paddock with the other like cows well yeah. camels. You call it, yeah, yeah, a cow, it's a yep. cow, yeah, and you shoot it. Like, does that that like really mess them up as well? Like, if so they if I had like, so this has happened to me before. I've had a camel that I was really worried about. I thought it was going to um possibly die, um, and it did end up dying. But before before it got to that point, I like removed him and I hid him from the other camels, and um, he did end up dying. But I never let them see the body, um. They just like called for him, um, for probably like two years. Two years, yeah. Like obviously less and less, but yeah. um, every now and then, I, I don't know. I like I'm a Fruit Loop. I've been around camels so much, like I know what their yeah. sounds mean, especially my own camels. Like, like if you go, out, if I go out there and Lulu's like, she'll just yell at me, and I'll be, like, oops, I forgot to fill up your water, sorry, yeah. <laughs> or something like that, like. <laughs> Um, which is fine because they're camels, like I'm not I'm the worst person. Um yeah, um I know I know that, that that's the sound that they were making. Yeah. Um that they were calling him. Um but if anyone is interested on that topic, there's a great documentary called I think it's Judas or Judas Collar, and it's basically about a camel that they you know, the Judas Collar oh. system. Um that where um but if anyone doesn't know, it's basically a collar that um they put on like a animal that then they send out into the wild so that they can find larger herds. Yes. And anyway, this camel um, 
basically s- realized what was happening. Every time she joined a herd, they would be culled. Um, so she just started living by herself <gasps> in the desert. Yeah. Now I'm like, do we have to eat the camel? <laughs> I know. Well, that's the thing. Like, I, like, obviously, like, I mean, I've been accused of being like a bleeding heart, like, weeping over camels all the time. Um, but I'm logical about it. Obviously, we can't have, they can't all be like mine, like, yeah. literally living in my backyard like a pet. Um, and, and all of that sort of stuff. But I still have enough respect for them as an animal that makes me think, I just wish that there was more that so could be done. Better way. Yeah. yeah. We can improve. So that kind of brings us full circle to where we are today, which is on yes. the cattle station. And just to clarify, the camels here are just pets. Yes. But we were having some interesting yarns this morning about, you know, and you know, we just touched on just like that was just scratching the surface on the differences between camels and cows. Like we yeah. should definitely do another episode. Um of like, you know, the differences between camels yeah, and cows. Yeah, I'm just warning you, it'll probably just be the most unpopular episode on like Central State. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be like, that mob's become a camel loving like Like I'm so, I just like, I'm so used to like pastoral people just like yeah, hating, hating me. <laughs> Not really hating me, but just hating the fact we have camels and stuff. But anyway. But there's... um. I think it's just, well, when it's just that big unknown, or not that it's a big unknown, like there's enough known, but it's just been the negative experience yeah. so far. You just have to be able to, it's like that pastoralist down in the goldfields of WA who wants to, who's advocating to like mm. get something mm. up and going because like there's got to be more mm. we can do. But um, so, yeah, I, I suppose I'd like to, to, as we start to wrap up, like head, talk a bit about, you know, you guys are back on, cattle stations now working primarily with cattle and you've Mm. you've just got your camels as pets but always like just being aware and open-minded to the opportunities to potentially you know run animals in conjunction or like co-graze yeah i mean evan and i um like we made a lot of like we did a lot of hard work. We did a lot of sac- like made a lot of sacrifices. I mean, like we lived literally like in a house that like didn't have like all the windows and and um we like it was officially classified as ruins and stuff like that to to get this training program off the ground. I lived like that for ages. Like we've we've just made a lot of sacrifices to get this off like camel stuff off the ground and um really like we got back into cattle largely because it's just so nice to have all the information there already um it, i mean like we've always like loved cattle and working with cattle and working on the land and really like one of the biggest reasons i love camels is is for the potential for um like regenerative agriculture practices and being in the cattle industry means we can do those and make those big changes it just got to a point where I was kind of just ready to hand the baton to somebody else. You know what I mean? Like, have you turned? Well, it's a it's a huge undertaking. Yeah, and like it's not sustainable to be like fighting that battle or you know or pushing you know shit yeah. uphill for yeah. And like, there's pardon the French, but yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and unfortunately, there's been lots of people that have seen the potential in the camel industry, and and you know, the biggest, the most likely person or people to invest. Um, in a camel industry is people in the Middle East because not only do they have the finances, but they also just love camels um, like a ridiculous amount. So, um, but unfortunately, my understanding is that there was 
been a few dodgy characters that have taken investors' money um, because Bedouins tend to be quite trusting, especially of, like, camel people, and they've just ran off with it. So Australia has kind of destroyed its own reputation um, in its biggest potential investor market in the Middle East. So we kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe we can get back there eventually, but there's definitely been burnt bridges there. So I guess my point is I suppose we banged our heads against the brick wall for sort of long enough to the point where – just need a break. Yeah, we really just wanted camels to be like, like a joy in our lives yeah. again well, rather than just like – the source of all our stress and anxiety. Yeah. Well, no, but that's such a fair point because there's so many, like, at the end of the day, and it's like I see this a lot with other people, like chasing a dream. Like you've got to, you've got to still, you know, yeah, be committed, mm. chase your dream, do the hustle, but you also have to balance that with your quality of life yeah. and to be happy with, you know, where you're at and where you're going and kind of find that balance so that you don't just like – yeah, spend your whole life like flogging your guts out, and yeah. then you kind of get to the other end and be like, uh, like you kind of you need to be so having uh, yeah, this, this break at the moment. And- I mean, I don't even know. Like, I don't really have any burning desire to get back into camels in a big way. If somebody said to us, "We want to start code grazing camels and cattle," I'd be like, "Great!" Like, I know exactly what we need to do. Let's do it. Um, but at the same time, like, I feel really happy with the contribution that we made to the camel dairy. Um, industry. There was lots of things that we that we did there, and I feel like that has made a that has made a big difference. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy with that. And um, and we you, still got your skill set. So the one day that one day, when I mean, I will. I have like people call me, you know, all the time and just ask me stuff, and I like you know probably should monetize that, but I I just don't really care. Like I'd rather people be doing things the right way. I'd rather people be being proactive. I'd rather um be helping people because like I mean I definitely didn't get a lot of support um I mean from some people I did but like the large majority of of people were were difficult to to learn from like nobody really wants to share that information so like I just want to give that information freely away and if somebody wants to do the work like I'm 100% behind them but you know like I know that like Evan like his real passion is like you know, cat- running a cattle station. So that's like, you know, what he and I are sort of doing now. And um, it's just, it is really rewarding because it means that we can, the information that we need, we don't need to like call a vet in Pakistan and like email somebody from a zoo and then like put together a panel of like professors and then like consult with all that information just to work out what to feed them. Like we already know. Yeah. Um. We know what to do. Like, we know what the best practices are. And, I mean, there's still so much room for us to grow, like, as a cattle industry. And there's so many things that, like, you know, we can we can get better at all the time. Like, you always can. But it's just, it's just really nice and really satisfying to be able to have a good foundation to work from. Yeah, I understand. I'm well, not that I've been in. I think I've had similar experiences with something else where, like, you're – you're trying to get something going and like, yeah, you can, you, it only, you just do it for so long before you just mm. need to have a bit of a breather. But in yeah. saying that, it's not like this is a breather for you. Like you're very, you're in this for the long haul in the country yeah. too. But 
I, it's great though that you've had that experience with camels and then you've come back to cattle or Evan's come back and brought you back with him to yeah. cattle. And, you know, if and when the opportunity arises in the future, it's a very unique skill set because I've learned so much in the past 24 hours. You know, there's certainly a lot of misconceptions about camels and certainly there's been plenty of negative experiences. And yes, yeah. they have been in, well, you know, described as, you know, plague proportions or whatever, yeah. or, or, you know, um, damaging infrastructure. Yeah. And there's certainly been, you know, there's been, you know, enough negative experiences, yeah. but I've learned a totally lot about the potential. Yeah. Um, and so to have someone like you who now, and it's not just, and now it's not going to be necessarily, like I'm not trying to make it sound like you're no, our one solution, but, um, no. you know, <laughs> you're our guru. But, you know, before you've got like your camel people and your cattle people and you're trying to like marry them up and kind of, you know, get them on that plane. Yes. You've got that cattle side now and your camel side so you've kind of got that perspective that's how i think about myself sometimes growing up in the city and then yeah. being out on stations and i can try and see things from both yeah. perspectives like sort so. of be like a translator yeah. or something like get between like even yeah i've done that in a literal and like sense as well like before where i've had like people from the middle east come over and try and buy camels off a pastoralist and the pastoralist um like accidentally offends the you know um businessman from the middle east and the middle eastern businessman accidentally offends the pastoralist and then i have to explain to them both just that that's just a cultural misunderstanding yeah. there's this very different understandings of of lots of things um and yeah i suppose that's like a like a literal representation of trying to communicate between cow cattle people and 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 camel people i mean there's definitely a lot of um adversity there and like i understand that like i know a lot of pastoralists have had the infrastructure destroyed by wild camels um and and you know they come in and they drink a huge amount of water but what what i would like to be able to communicate is if you have camels that are trained to deal with fences and that have enough food like you can keep them behind a piece of baling twine like you just they, they're so easily fence trainable, but wild, any wild animal yeah. isn't. Like wild cattle, wild horses, wild camels all walk through fences. Like I've seen them all do it. Um, and how often do they drink, were you saying, so, before we started recording? So, I mean, it depends, but, you know, you'll hear these stories of camels just coming in and um, drinking huge amounts of water or breaking off taps and trying to drink and stuff like that. Yeah. But those camels have just lived in the desert. Maybe they haven't had a drink for three months or six months or something like that. They they drink, you know, if you measure it out between a, a cow and a camel, like a, so much less water. Um, we So when we were doing camel dairy stuff, um, you know, the numbers that I was given was that um, dairy cows need four litres of water to produce one liter of milk, whereas camels need like 1.1 liter of water to produce a liter of milk. Um, they just use water so much more efficiently. Um, I've, you know, when I've trekked with camels, they, um, if we're in the desert and there's like a lot of green pick around or succulents and they love to eat succulents and, and weeds, um, they, they can like actually consume so much and extract so much water from their feed that they actually like get sick, like they get diarrhea from it. Um, and then you give them a drink and they haven't had a drink for a week or 10 days and they're just not even interested because they have met their moisture requirements. Um, just so just through fascinating. Like, yeah. I just want to do a whole episode on like, and I don't want to. I'm pretty sure we like, just did. <laughs> no, I want another one. Um, and I, yeah, I'm sure I love that. I just anticipate 
any like any negative responses and things like I'm not anticipating the people going, wow, this is so cool. I learned so much. I'm just anticipating like the naysayers, oh, 100%, um, same, which, yeah. you know, statistically, I'm yeah, sure there's like going to be at least one out there, oh, but yeah. we're like, not. Yeah. Like even like here on this like station, like people have come out and like seen our camels and been like, you're lucky I don't have a gun with me. And like, I mean, firstly, like just FYI, that's like not an appropriate thing to say about somebody's pet. Like I hate cats, but like I don't like go into somebody's house and be like, you're lucky I don't have a gun so I shoot your cat. Like <laughs> I'm joking. I just find it really weird. Like I understand if you don't like them, but like what a thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's just so much. I feel like it's – I've just learnt so much and – but I don't want to come across this as like naive little girl that's just been told all this stuff and is like, wow, camels are, camels are the <laughs> yeah. solution. But it's just enough to, through a critical uh, perspective, like a, cr- a critical lens um, or critical inquiry, whatever, you know, whatever they taught us at uni, problems, yeah. problems skills, <laughs> all those kind of, all that science, language. Science. <laughs> yeah, um, to be able to look at this and be interested enough to want to know more about it and yeah. not just write it off and be like, oh, camels, whatever. Yeah. They just, you know, wreck your tanks, rip out your fences for 20Ks and, mm. you know, they're in plague proportions and we should, you know, like mm. like some of the stuff, some of the, yeah, there's a – I mean, I we – this is just some people will just be intrigued enough just yeah. to – and they may learn more and be like, nah, still not a camel person, nah, don't believe Yeah, I mean, whatever. and I understand that because, but, like, you really need to, like, relearn basically your job to work with camels and that's – like an annoying thing to do. I totally get yeah. it. But like, there's also like things like when we were at Kings Creek, um, you know, one year it was just really bad drought and like everybody around us was, you know, struggling with drought and not making any money and having to like put animals down or destock or whatever. And so we, um, we were just catching wild camels to supplement the cat, the cattle sort of income that wasn't coming in. And we didn't, just get by on that station like the the station made like a very significant profit from that in saying that though if we were able to get buy-in for the camel industry and eventually if camels were grazed and i suppose farmed um rather than you know and then we would kind of like people have been trying to do with scrub bulls and scrub cattle like try and get those numbers down and down and down Mm -hmm. um eventually they wouldn't be those wild camels to be caught so that's that's probably a finite in in the best case scenario that would be a finite resource but then but then you would have them as i mean if like you know there's yeah there's two ways you could go about it just try and um Get, get rid of them all in a way that's not wasteful or, you know, there's, there is potential as far as I'm concerned for, um, for a like camel industry. Um, you know, like aside from their meat and their wool, their fat is like really good quality. Like I've got a friend who makes it into leather dressing. Um, I've, you know, like it's also like a, I don't know, it's like a healthier cooking fat. Um, it like kind of like, Duck fat, like people cooking in duck fat, like, you know, we would like cook potatoes in camel hump fat and taste like delicious. You could market it like to the paleo people or, um, like camel leather is super durable as well. Camel wool, um, is like really, um, smooth. So it's not like, um, sort of itchy, like sheep wool. It's, it's sort of like comparable to llama or, al- or, or alpaca. There's just so many things that you can use them for. So is it fair to say that? You'd liked, you know, and I'm not saying that this would be 
it's not a one size fits all, and we're not saying that this should happen on every patch no, of land no, around no. the country. But you'd like to maybe one day in the appropriate places where it is viable. You know, you'd be driving through your station and see some cattle over here, some camels over there, just kind of like dotted in amongst each other. Yeah, like we've sold camels to pastoralists um, already um, for multiple reasons. Like one of the reasons is that um, if you've got like a lot of mulga trees or similar things like that, acacia, anything that's acacia, they just love. Um, if you um, really heavily graze them in one area, you know, they'll actually trim the trees down so that they're more like a bush, so they're more accessible to cattle. They they eat a lot of prickly, horrible weeds and plants. There's actually only about a 20% crossover in what cattle and camels eat so they're not actually competing um, competing too much yeah and the other thing that is quite cool about co-grazing camels with cattle is that camels have a really unique gut microbiome it um you know obviously has to be fairly hardy to to digest some of the things that they eat you know they eat giant thorns and really woody um foods and, and things like that and uh so so their gut microbiome transfers into the water when when they share a water source, and it actually helps um, cattle to regain like statistically proven like more weight because they have um, better ability to like extract the nutrients from the food that they eat, particularly if you're in like woody areas. So to wrap up, if you could you know say anything to people about camels. Um, anyone listening who's got an into who might just be interested in learning a little bit more, just curious, you yeah. know, where where should they go? What should they do? You know, what would your one message be? Okay, so firstly, like, I suppose it's a message to everybody else. Like, please don't hate me. I am a <laughs> normal. I, I'm a normal person, and I'm a strong advocate for the cattle industry, despite like <laughs> despite the fact that we just spent an hour and a half talking about yeah. camels. Yeah, so. Firstly, that, like, just quick disclaimer, like, um, anyway, and secondly, um, honestly, I'm always, like, I'm always open to chat about them um, and, and yeah, more than happy, like, if somebody else wants to do the work or is interested in any way, um, you know, I've devoted, and, and Evan, you know, we've devoted so much time and research into it, like, we can probably save you time. I'm I'm more than happy to support anybody that is interested in um in not wasting um not wasting this sort of incredible resource that we have here. Awesome. Thank you so much for so much time on the podcast. It's very <laughs> generous of you. No worries. And very cheeky of me. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. No worries. 